the context. Somebody once said that a text without a context is just a pretext. A text without a context is just a pretext. Now what they meant by that was is you can take a verse out of the Bible and you can take it out of its context and make it say whatever you want to say. For instance, the old preacher was getting ready to preach one day and he hadn't really prepared, so he opened his Bible and he stuck his finger down and he decided I'm going to pray on whatever verse I point to. And the verse he pointed to was, and Judas went out and hanged himself. It's there, first in the Bible. He thought, oh, now this might be a problem. So he closed his Bible, opened it up again, took his finger, stuck it in and pointed it down and looked out. And it said, go and do likewise. He thought, man, this is getting me nowhere. So he closed his Bible again, opened it, put his finger in, and the verse said, what you must do, do in haste. All three of those are verses in the Bible. But all three of those texts, if they are taken out of the context, just become a, become a pretext for whatever people want to make them say. And, and so it's important for us to know the context in which this passage that we're looking at today is situated in a letter, where that letter was headed and why. Paul is writing to the Christians at Galatia because there was a problem. People including Peter... People, including Peter, had started saying, why no? We've got to to be good Jews in order to understand who Jesus is as the Messiah. And Peter had pulled Barnabas down with that as well. It's interesting how these are coinciding right now in our study of the book of Acts on Wednesday nights. The central section of the letter of Galatians is what we began looking at last Sunday. Chapter 3, verse 1 through chapter 5, verse 1. And in that passage, Paul is giving basically seven arguments verifying why the gospel message with an emphasis on the necessary unity in the church, why the gospel message is really good news. And so I want to begin today again by just asking, what is the gospel? Because if we don't know what the gospel is, we're not going to know what it is that we need to be sharing. Let me tell you this. Too many ministers, too many churches are preaching a message that goes something like this. You know John 3.16. What's John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Too many churches and too many ministers are preaching a gospel message that goes something like this. God hates the world so much that He killed His Son to try to save it. That is a 
faulty understanding of atonement. And they focus on God's wrath in order to do that. But the Bible says, not God is wrath. It says God is love. God is love. I like what John Stott said in his commentary on Galatians when he answered this. He said, the Gospel is not good advice to men and women, but good news about Christ. It's not an invitation to us to do anything, but a declaration of what God has done. Not a demand, but an offer. And that story is repeated over and over and over. Do you understand and do you know that the story of Israel, which is a story of election, and then resulting in a story of exile, that story begins long before Israel. That's the story that's told to us in Genesis 1-6. to The election of Adam and Eve as the first husband and wife family. And what resulted as, a, as they became sinful and a son commits murder and because of that, his blood is shed and the ground, Genesis says, cries out and he is exiled and it continues to roll until we get to the point that God says, man, I am sorry that I even created humanity. I'm going to send a flood to destroy it all. But he decides not to do that. He sends the flood, but he saves Noah. And there is restoration, resurrection, a new earth after the flood. And then that story starts again as he selects the Abraham. And Abraham, he has the family. And, and man, when you read the Old Testament, you, you sometimes think, duh, people. I mean, you have all these problems. You get yourselves back with right with God. And then all of a sudden, you're roaming away. And everything is turning sour, going wrong. Until you cry out to God. Much like the earth crying out to God. You cry out to God, and in His mercy, He hears you and restores and redeems. But eventually, what happened to the nation of Israel, Abraham's family? They got sent into exile. Now, in our look at chapter 3 as it began last week, we looked at the first three verifications that Paul says are there for understand for us understanding that no, we don't have to live according to the Torah, the law. That's not our marker. That's not what identifies us. We don't have to be circumcised. We don't have to keep those special holidays. We need to be faithful. And the first of those verifications that He gave for that was none other than the coming of the Holy Spirit. What did Peter say on the day of Pentecost? You are seeing fulfilled for you today what was prophesied by Joel. That in the day of restoration, the Spirit would be poured out. 
You see, the Spirit came not just as a religious experience. I'm leery of religious experiences. And that, that, that leeriness came early in life. I was at a meeting where, with my dad, where the minister was calling on anybody who felt the touch of God to come down front. And I kid you not, as a young man, I saw the lady sitting in front of me tap her daughter on the shoulder and say, Go on, it's your turn to go down this week. We should have emotions due to what we hear as the good news from God. But the experience that the early church was was having was they were seeing miracles being performed. They were feeling a power that they had that enabled them to do all kinds of things that they had never done before. Signs and wonders. But then he talked about the example of Abraham. Abraham, who was long before, 430 years before the law, before the Torah, who was counted as righteous because of his faithfulness, his trust. That phrase, by the way, is used one other place in the Old Testament. Counted as righteous, reckoned as righteous. Do you know where? Probably not. I didn't. This was new to me. It's used in the description of Achan. Remember who Achan was? I'm, I'm sorry. Phineas. Of Phineas. You know who Phineas was? Phineas was the guy who was so zealous for the fact that the church, actually the nation of Israel, but I want you to make application. Phineas was so zealous that the people get things straightened out that when he saw and heard about one of the Israelite men actually having an ongoing relationship with a Moabite woman, and in fact it was taking place right then, he killed both of them with the thrust of one spear. And the Bible says it was counted to him as righteousness. And every time that story is told, it mentions that. So what does that phrase mean? It doesn't mean that all kinds of good stuff was piled up on Abraham, all kinds of good moral stuff, so that he could be considered righteous. No. What it means was, it was counted unto him as a fact that he truly did Believe. He was one who trusted. One who was willing to put what he believed in his head into action with his hands and his heart and his life. And then the third one was the curse of the law. And I have this underlined because of how important it is. We have to go back to Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, to understand how important it was 
that Jesus became the curse. It wasn't that He became a sinner on the cross. He never became a sinner. He was sinless. But He took the curse. What's it talking about? It's talking about the result of disobedience. He took the penalty. He wasn't sinful. He took the penalty that was there in Deuteronomy when the people said, the law says this, and if we, if we don't do it, we'll be cursed. Okay, man, I agree with that. The law says this, if we don't do it, we're going to be cursed. Okay, I agree with that. But the exile began. And it didn't end in 70 years like they thought it was going to end. And Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 says, no, it's not going to be 70. It's going to be multiplied seven times because in the exile you didn't learn the lesson. 490 years, and guess what? 490 years takes us from Daniel up to Jesus. He became that curse. And that's what Paul is writing here. Jesus became the curse so that finally, which you see with the coming of the Spirit, which you should see because of faithfulness with Abraham, finally the restoration can begin. And Paul's argument is is very neatly logical. In verse 11, he said justification is of faith. Verse 12, he said just the law is not of faith. Justification is of faith. The law is not of faith. And he's quoting the Old Testament. When he says justification is of faith, he's quoting Habakkuk chapter 2. When he says the law is not of faith, he's quoting Leviticus 18.5. Therefore, justification and law are not a part of each other. I can't stress enough how important Leviticus 18.5 is. It's also quoted in Luke chapter 10, verse 28. And again by Paul in Romans, in Luke the context is that an expert from the law comes to Jesus and he's told by Jesus, well, do this and you'll live. That's what Leviticus 18.5 says. But what happened to the rich young ruler? What did he do? You see, that lawyer thought that he could naively fulfill the law's demands like many of us do today. So Jesus tells him a parable. It's a parable of a good Samaritan. You know the story, don't you? A Jewish man is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho and he gets mugged. And a couple of people, very important people for the story, come by and they don't do anything. A priest comes by. A Levite comes by. And neither of them do anything. Why? Because they're afraid that if they touch Him, they'll become ceremonially unclean and won't be able to go to the temple to worship. And so Jesus continues the story and He says, but a Samaritan came by. One of those people that we hate. That's how the story's going. 
And guess what? The Samaritan not only helped him, but he provided for continual help. And when Jesus asked that young lawyer, rich man, who was the real neighbor, do you know that he couldn't even say the Samaritan? He hated him so much, all he could say is, well, I guess the one that gave help. Because here's what the issue is. The law is... Good, good news to people who can keep it. But we can't keep it because it means doing good even to our enemies. And that's where the bad news comes in. We can't keep all of the law. No one is perfect. No one is made just in God's eyes because of the law. So what is that good news? What is the Gospel? Well, the good news is about Christ. How He comes to fulfill the story of Israel. It's a story about faithfulness. And that's where we're at today. And it's a message that has promise. So let's go to our text. Starting with verse 15. Let me give you a human example, he says. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say in two offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it, is no, long, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary, who was Moses, by the way. Now, an intermediary implies more than one. But God is one. What's He saying? God's, there, we don't have two parties. We have one. That's why Jews, Gentiles, we all got to be together now. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now I want to go back because I want you to see something.
this is accurate. Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. He makes a distinction when he's talking about the issue of our genetically, sexually oriented selves. But here's why. What does Genesis say about male and female? Male and female are what contain the image of Christ. Together. Not man, not woman. He says, He created them male and female, and they are the image of Christ as one. Now, here's the key verse. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. Let me tell you about writing style. In case you're still doing classes and studying and that kind of thing, good English teachers, when they look at a piece of writing that is given by a student, they look to see how well they are pulling together what they write in a paragraph or what they write in a paracope, a section of material, by how they introduce it and how they conclude it. What's at the beginning and what's at the end. And that's why this last verse is so key. Because it kind of sums up, it gives us an idea of what it is that Paul is focusing on. And as he begins this fourth argument about the superiority of grace and faithfulness over the law, he begins it by basing it on a human example. A covenant. A will. I don't know how many of you have a will. They used to call them the last will and testament. I don't know how many of you have a will. But supposedly... If you don't change it, it's not supposed to be able to be changed. Now I know that people have taken wills into court and somehow managed to get the court to make a different opinion about it. But what Paul is saying in that day, once that will, once that covenant's been ratified, it can't be changed. Unless the party who makes it changes it. And God didn't change it. And so when we look at this, the human example is that God made a covenant. He sealed it with a sign. And sign. Man, that word is so important. Uh, I'm reading a book right now and and basically the whole first chapter just pointed out how uh, Cain received a sign. There was a sign that was given in terms of the rainbow with Noah. Abraham received a sign. Jesus comes on the scene and this is the sign that you will see. There was a sign that was given 
with that covenant. And that sign was that that promise was going to last until your offspring. Now you won't believe how many pages of ink are used to explain how Paul did a bad job of interpreting the Old Testament by pulling that one word out in the singular and saying, ah, this is pointing to Christ. But it does. Christ is the promise. He is what came at the end of that 490 years from Daniel chapter 9. He is the one who took the curse so that restoration could be done and that was given to us by the sign of what? Resurrection. Now, how do we obtain an inheritance? Not by being good people, not by fulfilling requirements of the law, but we obtain the inheritance by doing what the will says. And what did the will that was given to Abraham say? That we have to be people who are faithful. Do you know that Jesus gave homework? Jesus gave a homework assignment. He gave it once and then a little bit later He said, you know what? If you'd have done your homework, you would have understood. I'm not kidding. Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. Jesus says this, Go and learn what Hosea 6.6 means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then He comes back in chapter 12, verse 7, and says, If you'd have done your homework and understood what it means when Hosea in the Old Testament said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would understand why I am saying to you these things are more important than your oral traditions. Not the Ten Commandments. Jesus never denigrated the Ten Commandments. In fact, every one of the Ten Commandments except one is repeated in the New Testament. The only one that's not repeated in the New Testament is honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Because we don't worry about Saturday anymore, do we? We worship the Lord God on the first day of the week. Because that's when Jesus was resurrected. That's when we see the new life. But they didn't understand. They thought somehow it had to do with those rules and regulations. Paul says, no. So why the law? What is the purpose of the law? And in verse 19, he says, it was there to help us understand. It was added because of transgressions. We didn't understand what we were supposed to do to have that relationship with God. So, Commandments were given to help us to understand so that we could be different, so that people would see us and recognize that we were different and understand that our God, the God of Israel, the God Yahweh, was in fact far superior, the only God, that there were no other gods. Let me, let me bring it down. Why the law? so that we could understand what no-no means. 
Isn't that where we start with our kids? They reach out to something? No, no. No, that's a no, no. The law was to help those childish, immature Israelites understand those things were no-nos. They were given a guardian. That word does not mean teacher. It does not mean tutor. I'll stand on that against any of those commentaries that say that. It means a babysitter. The pedagogue guy was the one who took the kids from their home and delivered them to the tutor so they could be taught, picked them up at the tutor, and got them back home. That's who the pedagogue guy was. And he says that's what the law was. The law was our babysitter to stick with us until we could get to Christ. And, verses 22 and 23, it also imprisoned us. It held us captive. Paul says several times, Romans 6, 16-22, it made us slaves of sin. Jesus, in fact, in John 8.34, says everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So, what becomes the important issue? Well, that's where the transition comes in. And forgive me, I'm trying to hurry because I took too long on my introduction. The transition is in verse 23 and 24. Now before faith came... We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Do you know what a synecdoche is? S-Y-N-D-O-C-H-E. S-Y-N, no, S-Y-N-E-D-O-C-H-E. Synecdoche. It's a word, you use them all the time. It's a word that stands for something bigger. A part stands for the whole. For instance, Cindy will agree with this and probably several others. If it's baseball team season, and I say, well, Chicago won by three runs. For Cindy, I would not have to say the Chicago Cubs won by three runs. Because if I say Chicago during baseball season, it means the Chicago Cubs. We use that all the time. A word to stand for something bigger. That's what faith is right here. Now before faith, meaning faithfulness as revealed in our allegiance, our loyalty, our trusting of Jesus Christ. Until that came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Now, why do I know that's what it means? He tells us. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Before faith came, the coming faith, until Christ came. You see that? He's using faith as a synecdoche to refer to our total relationship with Jesus Christ. A relationship of believing and trusting and 
confessing and repenting and, and being baptized. And what he's leading to is that when faith comes, then we move to the promises of God. Now that faithfulness has come, now that faith has come, we have the promises of God. So, we're no longer under that guardian. He says that in verse 25. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. We have the Spirit within us, guiding us, leading us. And our markers, our markers aren't circumcision and holidays and foods that we eat. No, our markers are faithfulness. Verse 25 and 26. For in, now the phase has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And so, what's that mean? Or what should it mean? It should mean that there's no divisions. That's what he means in verses 27 and 28. For as many of you... Oh! Paul doesn't talk about baptism. I've heard people say that. Paul doesn't say baptism is essential and important. I've heard people say that. What's verse 27 say? For as many of you as were baptized into Christ... So if you haven't been baptized into Christ, what he's about to say doesn't apply. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And when we put on Christ, when we've clothed ourselves with Christ, guess what? We can't see the color of our skin. Because we're clothed with Christ. So my brother that I talked to this morning by way of internet and technology in Indiana is clothed in Christ, and I'm clothed in Christ, so we look alike. My brother Robert Akwak that I, I talked to in Kenya, who is very dark black skinned. But when he is clothed in Christ and I am clothed in Christ, we look alike because we both look like Christ. And guess what? When my sister is clothed in Christ and I'm clothed in Christ, we look alike. There is no male and female. And if you don't think Paul believed that, read Romans 16 again. No divisions. We are the new Israel. That's why when people come to me and say, hey, what do you think about what all is going on with Israel right now? I say, it's a real tragedy, but I don't think it has anything to do with biblical prophecy at all. We're the new Israel, the church, Christians, people who are faithful, people who have been baptized into Christ, people who are living faithfully, obediently, loyally. So the question becomes... If we want to think of it in terms of salvation, and I don't think Paul, in, in 3, 1 to 5, 1, I don't think Paul is talking at all about salvation. I think he's talking about the importance of unity in the church. Being one. But it means we answer the question, how are we living? And I'm using that same slide again. The first week, 
I said we've got to be living the cruciform life. We've got to be living our lives so that everything we say and do points people to Jesus. We've got to be living, last week we've got to be living the faithful life. And this week, I'm telling you, we've got to be living like we are children who have received some significant promises. And if we're not living that way, then we don't even need to worry about who's saved and who's not saved. We're going to sing a hymn of commitment.